We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome to We Saved You a Seat and welcome to the month of February, where February is designated as American Heart Month. February 7th through the 14th is Congenital Heart Disease Awareness Week. Go Red Day is February 4th and of course the entire month of February has been designated as American Heart Month. Today, we are excited to introduce you to Nana, her amazing children, and the impact of congenital heart disease, or CHD, has had on their life. You will learn about Parker's prenatal diagnosis, multiple surgeries, and you will learn what the future holds for Parker and his family. Thank you again for joining us, and now join us in our conversation. First of all, it's nice to meet you. We have nice met to meet you before. Too. And, no, uh, we haven't. I'm actually kind of surprised that we haven't. It sounds like our worlds are pretty, uh, pretty tight knit mm-hmm. at this point. But yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast and I'm excited to hear about Parker. So yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for having me. I've been very excited. My whole entire family is pumped to hear it. So this is the first for me to be able to do something like this. So February is um, Congenital Heart Defect Awareness mm-hmm. Month. And so I'm hoping that you'll be able to give us your family story. I know it sounds like Parker is your amazing son who has lived through this and and has been a fighter through the congenital heart defect diagnosis. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about Parker and his journey through getting that diagnosis? And did it start when you were, uh, when you were pregnant with him? Did you get it then? Or was it after he was born? Well, I was seeing doctors in Oklahoma when I was pregnant. I had lived in Oklahoma at the time and was going to Lawton and Pretty much during my whole entire pregnancy, I kept telling my mom that something felt different. I don't know if it was like that motherly instinct, you know, and it just felt different from the pregnancy with my daughter. And I just kept telling her, I was like, something isn't right. I just feel like they're not catching something. And, um, and then, so she is a nurse at the hospital and she got me in with a provider in Wichita Falls and pretty much my very first appointment, he was able to catch something. He said, you know, his heart is measuring really small, but I want you to come back in a month. Um, he said, try not to worry. I want you to come back in a month and we'll do another scan. And so we did, I was right at like five months pregnant and he found that his heart, he was missing half of his heart. He couldn't confirm nor deny diagnosis. So he sent a referral. So I went and um, saw a provider in Denton and he confirmed the diagnosis at five months. He said, hypoplastic left heart. Uh, We will send a referral to Cook's. You will have to go there and have a fetal echocardiogram done. And so we did that. Literally this happened like all within, we we're kind of given the heads up, you know, that first time we saw the new provider in Wichita Falls. But then after that month, like this all happened within like a week time frame. They were getting us in like super quick. Um, and the 
doctor at Cook Children's did the fetal echo and she confirmed the diagnosis of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, meaning the left side of his heart was severely underdeveloped. In Parker's case, it just wasn't, it wasn't even underdeveloped. It just wasn't even there. With mitral and aortic valve atresia, meaning his mitral valve wasn't there, his aortic valve wasn't there. And I guess we saw her probably three more times during the course of my pregnancy and every ultrasound that we had after that, like the diagnosis just kind of kept getting worse and the prognosis just kept getting worse. Um, so then May 5th rolled around and I was scheduled to be induced at Harris Methodist right next to Cook's that way. As soon as he was born, they could just wheel him over to Cook's and get started, whatever they needed to do. Um, everything was fine, routine. They hooked me up to the monitor and saw that he went into second degree atrial ventricular heart block. It turned into an emergency section that morning. So they took him. I got to, they laid him on my chest briefly and then they took him. I didn't see him for probably eight more hours after that. Um, they took him to Cook's that evening, snuck over. They didn't want me walking, but I needed to be with my son. So I snuck over, fresh incision, couldn't hardly stand up straight. And my mom was in the room with me and she was asleep. So I was like, it's the perfect time to go. I won't get caught. So I walked over there and um, one of the doctors said he is really struggling with breathing. He put in breathing tube and then um, they scheduled him for surgery that very next morning. So not even 24 hours old. And he had his very first open heart surgery. And that's pretty much where it all began. So I guess it was in utero that you were diagnosed. So he was diagnosed in utero. And then mm -hmm. once he was delivered, they took him away pretty quick. And he had open heart surgery very, very fast after that. The very next morning, he was the first case. And it ended up being about a 16-hour surgery. Wow. Very sick. He was diagnosed in utero with the second-degree atrioventricular heart block, and which is extremely rare. The surgeon said that they never see that, that didn't happen, which he has now required a pacemaker for since birth. Pretty much he has had a pacemaker his whole entire life. Did they give you, when they diagnosed in utero, did they give you that um, hope that we can get, we can take care of this? Is this something that they we can did. Fix? I have been friends with so many people who they, different doctors give different um, prognosis different treatments. And some say no treatment will do comfort care, things like that. But not once did they tell me that they couldn't do it. They said, you know, he's very sick, uh, but they were all very hopeful, which made me feel a ton better. They said, you know, the outcome for these kids is so much better now than it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, they were I can't even tell you how many times there were touch and go moments where they were like, this is it, you know, call family and he's not going to make it. But, you know, they have gone above and beyond and he's still here almost eight years later. Wow. Those are pretty powerful moments that mm -hmm. there were moments that you thought you might lose him um, mm -hmm. because of congenital heart defect. Um, but he is, he's still here even eight years later. Walk me through, how long was he in the hospital then? Um, was it a PICU stay? Was it an NICU stay? Um, kind of walk me through some of that process since it was he such was, a quick um, surgery. 
Yeah, he was in the CICU for almost a month, the cardiac intensive care unit. He was intubated almost that whole entire month um, because he just, he couldn't, he had a lot of trouble breathing on his own. After that first month, he was sent to the NICU, which we spent probably about a month in there. And then it was, I believe it was July 4th, he was sent down to the, what they call the cardiac step-down unit, which is um, just kind of like where they monitor kids. And then um, he just kept having so many issues. He could not feed on his own. So they did surgery and implanted a feeding tube. Because of that surgery, he ended up getting sick. His little body just couldn't handle it. And he got very sick that night and was sent back to the cardiac ICU. And he ended up having to have an emergency heart cath um, because he got so sick. He had another heart surgery on August 11th, 2014. That was his third open heart procedure and um, called the Glen. And from his birth, we were in the hospital for eight months straight. We came home. We did come home for about 24 hours, probably not even. And he stopped breathing at home. So he was life flighted back immediately and we didn't get to come home again. We were discharged the day before Christmas and we finally got to come home after almost eight months. Okay. So y'all spent the first eight months of his life in the hospital. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about, did you travel back and forth from home to the hospital? Did y'all stay in the hospital? Like, did they supply like a Ronald McDonald house? Talk about some of those resources that you were able to access while y'all stayed those first eight months. They did. I did not want to stay in the Ronald McDonald house. It took me a while because I did not want to be away from him, but it, I'm a single parent. So it was just me there with him. I did get a room at the Ronald McDonald house, which they were amazing. You can only stay, I think it's like 60 or 90 days at a time. And then you have to check out for 14 and then you can check back in. They're very accommodating. And that was, that part was okay because I didn't mind being there with him, but there were times where like he was so sick that I refused to leave his side and the nurses had to come in and basically drag me out of the room and were like, you need to go get some rest. You need to leave and go sleep and come back. And if anything happens, we will call you. He will be taken care of. So the nurses were really amazing when it came to that. They became like family pretty much. I imagine for eight months living with those uh, nurses and that staff and that CICU and the NICU, really that whole hospital, you probably came very uh, familiar with even the, all yes. of the staff there. Uh, from Some of them don't even work there anymore and we are still all very close. Wow, that's, that, that says a lot about the hospital staff and the relationships built. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was a new mom kind of walking through that diagnosis and knowing that this is going to be an extended stay for them, that eight months, looking back at how you were able to process some of that and how to handle some of that, are there some things that you know you did because you were kind of in the moment of just emotional stress versus what looking back and going, I wish I would have done this? First, I will say not to do, I know it sounds silly as do not Google because I did Google and it almost made me physically ill because Oftentimes when you Google, you don't get the good side of things like this. Breathe, you have to take care of yourself. I did not. And there were times where Terry would message me and she was like, I, I've heard from a source that you are not taking care of yourself. You're not eating like you're supposed to. And so Terry always kept me in check for it when it came to that. But you've got to take care of yourself or you cannot take care of your child or be there for your kid. The doctors, they know what they're doing, but also like trust your mama heart and your gut. 
you know, speak up if you have an issue, things like that. Like it's not, I will not sugarcoat it. It is not easy. And almost eight years later, it's still not easy, still not easy. Um, I mean, there are times where like, I just go through the motions and then I like have to take a step back and I'm like, I'm still shocked at times that this is our life, you know, that, that we do this, but my main thing would be is to take care of yourself. The doctors and the nurses are there helping take care of your kids so that you can take care of yourself and be there for your child and stuff like that. I'm like I said, eight years later, I still struggle with putting myself first sometimes. And I mean, you absolutely have to. And I love that advocacy piece that you threw in there too, to kind of have that mama gut that if something doesn't feel right or doesn't seem right, because you, you truly are the one who spends most of your time bedside and you know what some of those numbers may say yesterday versus what they're saying today. And so, um, so I, I definitely can appreciate that piece of, of that as well. There was a time I was at Ronald McDonald house and I stayed, Parker was still in the NICU and I stayed with him until probably like one o'clock in the morning. And I just kept telling one of the nurses, I was like, something doesn't feel right. He, I feel like something's wrong with him. And they were like, you're, we will watch him, but you're exhausted. You've not left in like four days, go to Ronald McDonald house, get some rest, come back in the morning. Well, I was finally like, okay. And I did. And I kept calling like every 30 minutes. And I was like, is he okay? Is he okay? And they're like, yes, he's fine. Well, around three in the morning, which we dubbed the Parker's witching hour, because for like a week straight at like three in the morning, he would get sick for you know, no apparent reason. My phone rang and it was cooks. And I knew immediately I, before I even answered, I was out of bed putting clothes on and I answered and they said, Parker's heart stopped and he stopped breathing. You need to get up here right away. And so I get up there and they had him on the vent. They had a, he had a seizure. They had monitors on his head and that nurse came up and hugged me. And she was like, you knew that something was wrong with your child. And she was like, we were all she said, we were all kind of floored. We all had goosebumps because, you know, you called us nonstop to check on them. You knew that something was wrong with them. So that goes back to the advocate for your kid and just trust those feelings that you get, even if they are wrong, like there's nothing wrong with speaking up still. So tell me a little bit about, that was kind of the first eight months of his life and multiple surgeries in the hospital constantly. Um, a lot of ups and downs, very scary moments. I guess kind of walk me through these last seven years. I mean, obviously it's it's not a one and done. So, you know, the first eight months he was in the hospital. Uh, why don't you walk us through a little bit about what's happened since then? So much has happened. He has still been in and out of the hospital. Unfortunately, all of these procedures they do, they call them band-aids. They will, his heart will never be fixed. He will eventually need a transplant, which we've been told is basically just trading one illness for the other. Um, you know, ultimately we want that for him. We want him to have that second chance with a new heart. At the same time, that is a really hard thing to wish for knowing that another mother's heart is going to be broken so that ours isn't anymore, you know? Um, but he has, I mean, he's almost eight years old. That's amazing right there. He had, we have been in and out of the hospital a lot, multiple surgeries, infections, but we still try to give him as much of a normal life as possible while still protecting him in a sense, you know, especially with COVID right now, 
um, having to not expose him to that because it could be fatal for him. But um, he is in school and he is so stinking smart. He is in the second grade and we do homebound services. The teacher comes here and she teaches him and his older sister. She's amazing. You know, she's inadvertently kind of been put on the back burner per se. Um, We've tried to make things as normal for her too, but it's not, we don't live a normal life. You know, our life is very different from other people's and being a heart parent is like a whole different level of stress. We try to live life as normal as we can for the most part. Okay. So he actually, you have a teacher that comes to, to your home to teach him. Yes. What have, and you mentioned um, older sister, does older sister go to school? It was very hard for her. She has adapted, but we have like a great support system and she has a best friend that she goes and stays with whenever like Parker's in the hospital and they live here in town with us and they have helped tremendously, but we have, we've had several people that have like stepped up and kind of helped out that friends that have become family um, during that first eight months in the hospital, especially during the summertime, my mom would bring her up and she would stay with me for, she stayed with me at one time for close to a month in the hospital and which was different because they don't allow siblings in the NICU at certain hours of the day. So there were times where I couldn't go in and be with Parker because I was with Kylie and which we both needed because, you know, single mom, she's the first six years of her life. It was just her and I, you know, so this situation was very hard for her, um, but she has adapted. She is amazing. Straight A student in all AP classes on the honor roll. She has or risen above and beyond like this whole CHD life. Isn't just about Parker it yeah you know he is the one that has to go through all of the things but as a family like we are all affected in one way or another and she has really just she has made me so proud yeah the siblings are pretty special aren't they they are you talked about the procedures that he has now are band-aids are the procedures y'all go in for now are they um where are they lengthy stays in the hospital and tell a little bit of them of the procedures that he still has um some of them are they always joke and say, you know, they never know what's going to happen with Parker. Something that like another CHD patient could be in the hospital for, for like a day or two. He's been in for like three months. Um, he had, he suffered from a staph infection from a previous surgery for a whole year. And, um, you know, the wait and see method was basically what was taken to try to avoid surgery. And it ended up being a major surgery, two open heart surgeries in a month period for him. And at this point, they are just, they are just band-aids. He does have a procedure next week. It's a cardiac catheterization and where they will cut in the groin and one in the neck, and then they'll feed catheters through with cameras on them. Kind of like they check the blood pressure in his lungs and then they will, he, his pulmonary artery has narrowed significantly. So they will be doing an angioplasty, which is they'll put a balloon in and widen it. And then they will place a stent inside of that. So he has sometimes stayed for one to two days after a procedure like that. And sometimes it's been like a month. So it really, it just, it just kind of depends on Parker and how he's doing and also what the hospital finds whenever they do this procedure. I'm, I mean, I'm just imagining my life with my kids 
and trying to find the balance, you know, resources and the supports in your community that you so desperately need and fall back on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of those supports? Um, well, my mom, she lives like two streets over and she helps a lot, but there are times like when surgeries that, um, she kind of doesn't want me to be alone. So she'll come with me. If not, uh, like for lengthy hospital stays, Kylie is with my mother and, um, and my dad lives in Cherokee, Oklahoma. And, um, those parents will help out. Like they'll come for procedures if my mom isn't able to come and then they will help out and, then Kylie will be with my mom, but um, mainly she's either with my mom or she's with her friend. And that's who she will be with next week. And they, like I said, they've been amazing. She was like, if he doesn't come home, she's welcome to stay with us as long as she can or as long as she needs to. And sometimes even at like a moment's notice, I'm like, hey, I need help with Kylie. We've got to go to the hospital. And she's there immediately. I love that. I love that the supports that you've been able to hold on tight to so that that does make life easier for sure. What are some of the hardest pieces knowing and kind of working through the CHD diagnosis? For sure, watching him go through it, you know, as a parent, mother, father, you want to be able to take that away for your child. And while I say like this whole entire experience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It has been extremely humbling and has changed my outlook on life. It is still the absolute hardest thing I have ever been through in my entire life watching your kid on life support and not knowing if they're going to make it to the next day or not being able to take it away or when they're crying and they say, mama, no more pokes, no more surgeries, please make it stop. Or honestly, it is a terrible way to live, constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I know that other like heart parents or parents with sick kids in general probably understand and feel the same way like a lot of people on the outside they're like you know that you can't live like that you gotta live like it's your last often don't understand the things that us parents go through on the daily on a daily basis you know and that's probably the hardest part or doing it alone and not having people to talk to or vent to that can really understand luckily I am I have amazing heart mom and heart dad friends that we speak with and for such a rare condition that he has like there are several people in our area that they have kids that also have the same condition or a similar one that you know I'm able to reach out to and talk to and vent if I need to and they 100% get it and understand. I love that I, lo I love that you've created your own community of support was deciding on the, the G-tube, was that a hard decision to make? Or was that something like, that is secondary to the heart, so we're just going to do, do this? That was pretty much my outlook on it. I was very naive. I was very young. I mean, 24. And I was very naive to the whole, like, heart mom, heart parent life. You know, I didn't know about CHDs until my son was diagnosed with one. And I didn't know that feeding tubes were a very common practice with kids who have had lengthy hospital stays or who have severe heart disease like my son. And it was about a month and they, he just could not gain weight. He was not eating. And they were like, he, we're getting to that point. We want to know what you think about it. And I, I was like, I don't know. I know nothing about this, you know, like they kind of like 
sprung it on me and they were like, it is vital for him to get to a certain milestone in his weight to continue on with his next surgery so that, you know, he's strong enough. And I was like, well, then absolutely. It, it was probably one of the most intimidating experiences though, learning how to do it. And he did have just the AMT mini one G button at first for a really long time. And then, um, he had his Glenn, he had a stroke at three months old and he lost all of his ability to eat by mouth. And, um, at that point he was not able to keep down any of his G feeds like through his stomach and he was vomiting a lot. He struggled with his medications. Um, and I'm sure since you have a kind of some experience with the tubes, you know, that can't really do medications through the J port on the GJ tube because it's not absorbed properly. And at that point we were like, okay, we've got to get him some nutrition somehow. This amazing GI doctor came in. I'd never met him before. And he was like, this is what we're going to do. And he took him to surgery and put the GJ in. And then he slowly started gaining weight. And um, honestly, in hindsight, and it's sad to say, like all that he goes through, that tube is pales in comparison to everything else, but it has been a complete lifesaver. Like when he is sick, he gets stomach viruses all the time. When he's sick, I'm able to just put some Pedialyte in his feeding bag and hydrate him and he can't throw it up. And it's been a lifesaver and I am forever, forever thankful for it. I know some people are like, what? But I am thankful for that feeding tube. So he does not use it for everything then? Yes, he does eat orally. He goes through spells where he will eat like he's never eaten before in his life. And then he'll go through spells where he won't eat for days. Um, he is still on two feeds, though, 24 hours a day. We do get, he's allowed four hours off a break. So, but he still gets to bed 20 hours a day because it's still, he burns twice as many calories as we do because of his heart. And so it makes it hard for him to gain weight too. So um, he still has to be on the feeds and then he gets all of his medications through the G port and that does help him. But he does, he does eat by mouth and he drinks by mouth. And so. Uh, thank you for that little education piece. Um, of course. Because I, I think that sometimes, you know, we think it's a heart issue. We don't think about the entire body and the whole processing mm -hmm. of everything. It's just, oh, once we get the heart done and get it fixed, uh, it, then we're done. But there are so yeah. many other elements that are, that kind of compound together. Uh, yes. To this. So, the heart defect alone it uh, it has affected everything like his brain so basically if he didn't have a heart defect he wouldn't have all of the other issues that he has so i mean it's affected his brain his liver his lungs um he had and his stomach so it has affected everything for him so let me ask you do you see a specialist for all of those areas then we do he was recently diagnosed I guess it's been about a year and a half um, with chronic advanced stage liver disease um, because of his poor lung pressures caused by his lung disease. He has portal hypertension, which has caused pressures to back up in his liver, which has caused the liver disease. So we see, um, right now we see GI for that. And he sees a neurologist and we see a pulmonologist for his lungs and we see a cardiologist with an electrophysiologist for his pacemaker. We see all the people. 
Yes, you do. You see all the people. So definitely not to try to, if there's a new mother out there getting this diagnosis, you know, maybe they're just in the early stages of getting the diagnosis. I guess, are there any highlights or any, is there anything good or anything um, sweet that you can just pull out of your journey and say, it's it's not all been bad. No, it hasn't. Like I said, it has been the most humbling and rewarding thing for me because I get to witness a miracle every single day, you know, and God blessed me and trusted me enough to bless me with a child who needs so much extra love and care. And so I don't take that lightly. And like, it makes all of the milestones that they reached that much more bittersweet. And it has like, he is, he is rotten sometimes. I will tell you that he is a boy, but it, he is the sweetest kid. He loves everybody and he has the biggest heart and it's, I don't know if you heard that or not. He said, no, I don't. I only have half, but it, I mean, it's still a good life. You know, it's still a good life. It, there are days where I'm just like, I feel like I can't breathe, but he wakes up with a smile on his face every single day. There's not a day that he doesn't. And that's, you know, enough for me. If he can do it, I can do it. Those are powerful words. If he can do it, I can do it. Um, I just have hope. That's what I would tell any mom. Just have hope. Are there things that you restructured your life with? Um, are there things that you maybe look back and say, you know what, we, we did make these decisions to, to try to make his life even um, better and more secure and safer? Um, I, there were a lot really like social interactions, social outings. And I mean, not just since COVID, this has been pretty much his whole entire life. We've had to keep him in a bubble. I mean, there have been times where a common cold have put him in the hospital in the vent because that's just how things like that affect his body. So um, there are a lot of things that, you know, some people take for granted that we had to give up. Um, I'll even say that I have taken for granted at one point before I had him that, you know, we do sometimes miss. He, you know, whereas like his sister growing up had sleepovers with friends and stuff, and he can't do that. And it's not just, protecting him from illness it's he has an illness that needs 24-hour care that we have to provide for him like checking vitals every two hours he is on two feeds all the time and doing meds his last dose of meds is at 11 p.m at night so you know like social outings being with friends or simple things like going to the park he he's really struggles with and I have to take him in a wagon because we still try to make do stuff like that. All worth it though. Every bit of it's been worth it. Those opportunities going to the park, even just that, just that sweeter, just like as we were saying, sweeter moment. Um, pretty yeah. precious. So. I'd rather be doing all of this than not be doing all of it, if that makes sense. Talk about the role of COVID. How did COVID impact your um, your life? Very few things we had to change simply because we have done these things this whole entire life. Our the precautions had to we kind of had to step those up just a little bit. Like when it got really bad, his sister did have to stay home from school and do virtual, which most everybody did. But then you know the going into year two, she did stay home for like the first semester and do virtual learning though I say very few it was a that was a big thing for her because she left school 
And I finally decided to let her go back because I want her to still have those opportunities as well, all while being safe. You know, we wear masks and stuff like that. And we clean our hands and we use our hand sanitizer and stuff. But for the most part, um, not much really changed other than we were just having to be a little bit more vigilant with the people that we allowed around us that maybe didn't take the precautions that we did. That was pretty much it. We kind of just secluded just a little bit more than what we normally do. And asking your circle to even be a little tighter um, with their precautions and, and all of and that. And they all did. Like, they don't have to. And they every single one of them did. Like, our home health nurse, she, because she's been with us for almost five years, and she adores Parker, and Parker adores her, and she did as well, like, limited her interactions. And if she didn't, she'd let me know ahead of time. And like everybody, like our close circle around us, they were all very um, considerate in regards to that. When I had COVID in August and you actually did get COVID then. I did have COVID and I was fully vaccinated when I got COVID being the only caretaker, you know, that was hard, but I was able to keep Parker from getting it. I wore a N95 mask and then a humongous face shield. And I only got close to him when I had to do check his numbers or do meds or um, tube feeds. And I stayed on this side of the living room and he stayed on that side. And he did not get it by the grace of God. And he did not get it. And it was rough. I bet it was. But that was really hard. You mentioned checking his numbers. And I wondered if you could kind of walk me through what it is that you do to check numbers. What exactly does that mean? And uh, maybe... Um, I don't know, kind of give a glimpse of, of that process, I guess. Um, to check numbers, we do his blood pressure when we do his vitals to make sure his blood pressure is stable and uh, check numbers. We hook him up to a um, heart monitor. It's like a big square hunk of plastic and metal and it checks his heart rate and his oxygenation level. So we have to check that every two hours. And then at nighttime, he is on it continuously. It's just a tiny probe that wraps around his toe or his finger and it kind of tells us tells us how he's doing he has certain parameters he has to stay in like for example his oxygen he cannot drop below 80 percent or he is required to be on two liters of oxygen and um his heart rate that is always crazy because of his pacemaker um but if it goes like i'd say probably any higher than 100 we are required to send a pacemaker strip in which is another little monitor that we just place over his pacemaker it pairs to my phone and it records like what's going on and what has happened in the past and it sends it directly to Medtronic who sends it to his cardiologist you actually check his you, you check his like vitals basically every two hours throughout the day and then he's mm -hmm. on he's on the monitors at night so he's kind of got the leads yes. able to do it or if he's feeling or if he's sick and not kind of feeling well during the day he'll stay on it can continuously through the day as well so, so y'all have a big routine for trying to keep them healthy, trying to keep them in um, good shape for the next procedure, I guess. Talk to me about home health and maybe why you have home health. Was it easy to get home health? What are some of the things that they come in and do with Parker? Um, we don't really have day nursing anymore, which again, I'm totally okay with. You know, I know that Parker is taken care of, which, you know, he never wasn't with a nurse, but uh, I'm mom, you know. I just, nobody can do it like me, but like our nighttime nurse, she'll come in and she'll do his nighttime meds, check his vitals. And, um, she comes in three nights a week and basically just makes it to where I can have it at least like three nights a week of uninterrupted sleep. 
Um, it's not always like that. There are times where he feels bad more often than not. He's not feeling well and, you know, he wants to be with mom, but they, it's, they just basically give me some sort of a break and to where I can breathe, shower alone, like I said, uninterrupted sleep, or if I have an errand to run in the morning, because she's here from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., um, I can take Kylie to school without getting him out in the cold or like the extreme heat of summer and stuff like that. For how many hours a week do y'all qualify for? We actually qualify for 84 hours a week of nursing plus 14 hours um, of like what I think what they call like respite care or something like that. And so, but yeah, we just utilize the night nursing right now. He does a lot better like during the day with me. And so right now I'm okay with that. Do, do you work outside the home then? Um, are you able to work and kind of have a job as a single mom taking care of your son with CHD and all of that? Um, it is hard to have a job being a, the full-time caregiver. Um, I did at one point apply for a few places and I was very honest up front. I did not want it to come back and, you know, bite me in the end. Um, I was actually even hired to buy a place in Wichita Falls. And then I was filling out paperwork and they had asked about a, if I would be needing any time off during this 90 day probationary period. And I was like, well, my son has this appointment and this appointment and this appointment. And they basically right then and there said, I'm sorry, it's not going to work out, which I completely understand, you know, like these businesses have these policies. So no, I have not been able to work um, being a single mom. And I think some people think once again, the, the nurse could take care of all of that. But if you only qualify, you know, for so many hours, it's like, I still cannot work. And I would rather be at home with my son anyway, being the caretaker yeah. and being at a job. And when you have, when you do have to rely on that daytime nursing and having a sick child, you, you've got to rely on them for everything, like to just have a somewhat normal resemblance of a of a life, being able to work, go to doctor's appointments for yourself and things like that. If you were to tell somebody, here's your future, you know, that's diagnosed. Um, are there other words of advice that you would give other families as they kind of face this journey? You know, I know not everybody's the praying type, but just have faith and hope. Um, these kids are really resilient. More often than not, they're okay. I mean, your life is never going to be normal and sometimes that's okay too you know like I said I wouldn't change any of this for anything I again would much rather be doing this than not because I know what that means for me and my family and I'll do this until the day I die you know it's just made me a completely different person and I have met amazing people it's been hard but very rewarding at the same time but yeah being okay with that uh, it took me a long time to get there, a very long time to get there and understand, you know, that this is our life now, you know, as hard as it is, you just have to embrace it. Like they completely re rely on us as parents. Like I said, it is completely rewarding watching him dance in the living room right now. So <laughs> um, do you do anything for um, Heart Awareness Week um, or the month of February? Is there anything that you do? specifically yeah. awareness. I share I share tons of pictures on social media uh this group called Mended Little Hearts they give you prompts to share something about your journey every single day for the 
month of um, February, um, CHD week is actually the 7th through the 14th. Then National Wear Red Day, where everybody wears red for heart disease, is on, is it the 4th? This, this Friday. So I encourage everybody to wear red. Like I say, I, I post nonstop on social media. I love that. I, that. I mean, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. Being able to, bringing awareness from the level of someone who has lived it is much more impactful than hearing it from just the numbers standpoint from the, the organizations that are out there. So uh, I know I appreciate you telling your story and sharing Parker with us for sure. And I, I really look forward to more updates. I I hope that you're able to maybe come back and provide us with additional updates. Well, I appreciate you so much for having me. If anybody has questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'm all about educating and informing about CHD awareness. I think having um, having conversations about this is so important. And so I appreciate it. It really that. is. It is so, it's not, like research is not funded enough. And it's, you know, one in 100 kids are born with heart disease. And it's just not talked about enough. And it should be. Yeah. You did. I mean, you really don't think about it unless it's happened to you. And so and I was uh, one of those people. I was very naive. Like that's not going to happen to me. And it did. It sure did. So it's one of those things. Don't think it won't happen to you mm-hmm. because it because very it well can. Could. Yeah. So, well, thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. And I definitely look forward to um, sharing. Thank you so out. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271-5072.